This is Action Potential. I'm your host, Sahan Ranamukarachi, and we welcome you to the show. Our goal is to propagate ideas that can revolutionize medical care delivery. Join us on a transformative journey as we amplify the voices of thought leaders, explore the cutting edge of remote physiological monitoring, and ignite a wave of positive change. Hi, everyone. This is podcast episode three of the Action Potential podcast. Uh, I'm so delighted to welcome Dr. Shaminder Gupta from Monogram Healthcare. Um, Dr. Gupta and I have known each other for a while now, and we've often spoken about the topic of remote physiological monitoring, better care at home, uh, how to manage chronic populations earlier, lots of different interesting topics for us to discuss and dig into today, but we're delighted to have him join our podcast. Um, and without further ado, um, Dr. Gupta, who I refer to as Shami. And so Shami, please introduce, uh, yeah. introduce yourself to our audience and tell us about your journey. Yeah, uh, thank you, Zahan, for the invitation today. Really excited to be here and share this experience. Um, so Shaminder uh, Shami Gupta, I, I'm a nephrologist, uh, born and raised in Louisiana. Uh, my parents are of Indian origin, but immigrated in the 60s to America so uh, and landed in Louisiana. So basically born and raised here, I uh, did my training here in, at LSU Medical School and my residency and fellowship at Charity Hospital in New Orleans and was fortunate enough to finish right before Hurricane Katrina. So finished my training in 2004, which also helped shape my career. As I left training, I, I imagine like most nephrologists finishing training, not really knowing what was ahead of me, but I had a very big interest in academics and, and teaching and being part of residency programs. So I envisioned my career would take that path of being a part of the university and teaching and doing dialysis and, and all those things that nephrologists do. Uh, immediately impacted by Hurricane Katrina one year later, as I was in a private practice I didn't enjoy, went back to academics part-time, and then the hospitals I was practicing both flooded during the storm. So I went from being employed fully to being unemployed fully overnight uh, with a young family and a lot of uncertainty. Uh, fortunately, I used to work nights at a small hospital, uh, moonlighting like a lot of residents did at that time, and I was able to land a job there in a small town called Homa, Louisiana, just southwest of New Orleans, very rural uh, community, and, and loved it because I grew up in a town that size prior to moving to New Orleans, and thought it'd be temporary and ended up going there and uh, loving it, and, and built my practice career there, teaching residents, building a residency program, but also having the ability to do nephrology and some entrepreneurial things that other nephrologists didn't have the opportunity to do because of the rural market. Uh, fast forward uh, five, six, seven years, built a home dialysis program before it became in vogue in 2008, 9, and 10, really out of necessity because of the hurricane and the weather threats here. And I was a new nephrologist, not really understanding what that meant, but just started building, uh, getting some mentorship, building this practice, and uh, in 2011 launched uh, my own joint venture dialysis clinic with a small company called Reliant Renal Care, competing with the LDOs like Fresenius and DeVita in my own market. And, you know, if you can't uh, beat them, join them was the philosophy really as six years passed and I'm duking it out with them. Eventually Fresenius acquired Reliant Renal Care and allowed me to stick around as medical director. All the while, Sahan, uh, you know, serving my, my community as the National Kidney Foundation president, having some other entrepreneurial uh, ambitions, and lo and behold, met Monogram Health as they launched their business model in Louisiana in the Gulf states through Humana in 2019. VBC, they called it. I was already practicing it. So uh, we hit, the CEO and I hit it off. And a good time of life for me as my children were growing up. I was tired of working nights and weekends. And I wanted to test the waters with this. So hence, 
I'm now the chief medical officer of Monogram, uh, and I've done that role now for the last two and a half years, and, and really enjoying bringing that local model that I launched in my community to a much grander stage. You know, uh, we're in 35 states now, managing nearly 110,000 lives from CKD3B through end-stage kidneys, and really in this very holistic uh, approach, which I'm very um, excited to share with you today. That's amazing, uh, amazing history of your uh, of your practice and your journey to get to where you are today. Um, Shami, tell us a little bit about Monogram's journey as well, and then we can dig into a little bit of the influences that you just mentioned of your own career to the, the type of things that you're doing right now with Monogram. Monogram, from what we see, uh, is, a, is a massive company now that's growing ever so rapidly. Mm -hmm. uh, some key investors uh, backing you, along with other players in the kidney care space. Yeah. What's really the driver behind Monogram's growth since, like you said, 2019 wasn't a long time ago. Right. There was COVID in between that, yet people are increasingly starting to recognize the work you're doing yeah. uh, at Monogram, and uh, and that must be really rewarding. So tell us a little bit about Monogram itself. Yes. Yeah, so, so when I joined Monogram, the model was really a managed services model where we would partner with practices and existing PCPs, nephrologists to drive better care through evidence-based guidelines. We didn't manage our own patients, but we helped manage large cohorts of patients through a payer, for example, uh, Humana, Cigna, and others. Um, as we started doing that, we realized that a lot of the patients we were seeing, basically through claims data, did not even know they had chronic kidney disease. Hence, they had not even been referred to a nephrologist, and we were often the first person telling them that they had kidney disease, which was obviously very disconcerting to the patient. So after that, we found that out. Uh, the health plans really asked that we start providing some of the care to the patients through uh, uh, diagnosis capture, and then following that with really an, an innovative way to see patients in the home using our own care team. So we evolved from a managed services company to a full-scale provider now over the last four years through demands. And as you mentioned, COVID really accelerated this as we're one of the few companies in the country and the only one in the BBC kidney space that actually deploys an in-home model. So we are comprised of an MD leading a pod who leads an RN social worker, dietitian, our own internal pharmacy department and SDOH departments. And we deploy what the patient needs at home, whether they have an existing uh, care team, meaning PCP nephrology, or they don't. And we are not um, directly involved in terms of their care if they have a doctor, other than being the eyes and ears of the practitioners in the field. So the thought is that if they have an extra layer of care, they'll call before they go to the hospital for things that they can be taking care of outpatient. We work to drive better outcomes in terms of planned dialysis, starch, transplant, and conservative care. But our journey has been a rapid one because of the needs and demands and, and the real boom of value-based care across the country. I'm very happy that we have competitors in our space all pushing each other to drive patient-centered care. You know, nephrology was a very fragmented, uh, siloed care system before. Patients were GFR-based referrals, <clears throat> and then they had a cardiologist and endocrinologist, et cetera. Now we're kind of refocusing that care to a one-stop shop or a centralized service and utilizing the specials the patient needs, not utilizing all the specials that are available. So really empowering upstream care really became the name of the game. And from a patient-centered way, it makes sense. Obviously, you know, the patient is at the center of this. They're being taken care of the way they need to be. But from a payer point of view, it also made sense, right? Because it, it avoided overutilization. It created accountability. And, and dialysis no longer becomes a default when you think that way. It becomes an option, which is one of our theses at Monogram that ESKD should not be synonymous with dialysis. So a lot of the, yeah. the private equity and backers also you know, recognize this opportunity, as you alluded to in the intro, 
And there's been a lot of support of not only us, but other VBC-based renal companies across the country. So we're no longer VBC renal, we're VBC polychronic. So we've really expanded our services to touch on realizing that patients not only don't only have one illness, they often have concomitant cardiac disease, diabetes, COPD. And most importantly, I think as social determinants of health and behavioral health issues are often ignored or undertreated because people just don't have the capability of doing that. So we emphasize that approach to all five domains, really, of the patient. Is this kind of your dream job, uh, Shami, having <laughs> worked in home dialysis in rural communities where you probably saw, you know, a lot of the reasons why people end up, ended up in dialysis and thinking, yeah. you know, upstream and thinking, how do we stop that from happening? And now having the capability to really make that kind of, you know, the dots connect in a way across polychronic care, because sometimes we always tend to look at the outcomes and think it's very linear, the path that people follow, but in fact, mm -hmm. it, it isn't, right? So yeah. Is this kind of like your dream job that you're kind of living yeah, in right now? Yeah, yeah. I, I think as the longer I've been in this job, it is becoming more of that. You know, it really allows you to practice freely. It allows you to practice without the constraints of fee-for-service and RVU-based care. It allows you to, you know, maybe this one patient needs 10 visits this month and this other one needs one visit a year, but you're taking care of a holistic population in a risk model, you know, where, you know, you get paid on outcomes, not on simple visits. So I think it keeps skin in the game for everyone and allows you as a clinician to choose what's most important for the member or patient, not what just has to be done to check a box to bill a level four code. You know, I think that's yeah. a lot of the folks we've attracted to join us at Monogram. Sahan came from that kind of uh, hamster wheel practice. And now that they're with us, they've had to adjust to kind of being a moderator or quarterback. But they also have a lot more time and gratifying visits because they can see that the results of what they do in real time, a patient having a planned dialysis start, a patient getting a kidney transplant, a patient transitioning to conservative care hospice in a, in a way where they're guided that way and not having to see four other uh, specialists or, or those sorts of things. So I think our model resonates in that way. And it is my dream job now that, you know, I get this platform to share it with people like yourself and others. You know, ASN is next week. So the opportunity to mix with other people who have, are like-minded and really pushing the ball forward. You know, I'll steal one of my colleagues who I interact with, who's, who's out of California. You know, he said he dreams of the day when value-based care is no longer the moniker, but it's just care. You know, I think that's exactly. always resonated with me is why, why are there two level, why are there two types of care, right? I mean, it should be just all value-based care, you know, so yeah, why are there exactly. two tiers or two tracks? So I dream of the day when that's the term, right? That every patient is being taken care of that way. And, and CMS is pushing us to do that, which has been a big, you know, a, a big uh, pushing us in that direction. You know, COVID pushed us to allow telehealth to be more acceptable. You know, the payers are realizing how expensive kidney disease is and how we have to do better in that way to fix their bottom lines and the government bottom, uh, insurance bottom lines. So we had a lot of, you know, tailwinds here pushing us in the right direction to have these outcomes. And we're starting to see the fruits of our labor across the board now that we're kind of in year three, four, five of this it's no longer an experiment, right? It's it's here to stay. Yeah. And then we're seeing the results because people have the patience to wait for them now as opposed to quarterly yeah. results. So it's nice. Yeah, I'm really glad to hear that. Um, particularly as we as we think about, you know, putting patients at the center of it. I think from what I've heard from lots and lots of cardiologists and nephrologists, Shami, and I think this is probably resonating with your journey too. You spend so much time building very long term relationships with patients as they go through this journey. And it's not a short and acute journey. It's something that, you know, as you said, if you're figuring out, you know, people have chronic kidney disease before they even properly know it, 
then it is really a relationship you're building for the long term. And you're not just providing like very short term solutions for them. You're trying to help them navigate their journey. So you do want the cardiologist and the nephrologist really communicating and working as a team to support the patient's best interests and needs. Uh, one of the things I love seeing in terms of monograms updates is that emphasis on cardiologists and nephrologists, for example, yes. working together, which has historically been very disparate, if you will, in the in in caring for for those patients. What what has that looked like in our, in terms of integrating different disciplines into a care team yeah. and putting the patient at the center of it? Yeah. So uh, great question. So you know we know that these patients as they progress have multiple medical problems, and really our our idea is that you know, we should really identify which is the major problem driving their outcomes. So for example, mm -hmm. if you have a patient with congestive heart failure who's hypoperfusing and that's driving their kidney disease, the cardiologist likely should be managing that patient with nephrology support. Conversely, if you have a patient on dialysis who's having CHF exacerbations in and out of the hospital, it's likely the nephrologist should be leading care for that patient and leaning on the cardiologist so there's not mixed messages to the patient. You mentioned supporting that um, encounter with pharmacy, unifying, making sure there's an accurate med list so the patient's not getting duplicative drugs from different people. So it really, we kind of coined it specially based primary care. So when we deploy folks to the home, our nurse practitioners and physicians are, are expected to manage chronic complex conditions to a certain degree and then utilize a specialist for the uh, support they need if they're beyond their scope or have specific questions about that patient. You know, so it's very important that the patient have one primary care specialist, kind of a play on words a little bit there, but you know, it's, they're too sick for their primary care doctors oftentimes, and they're using the consultants to manage them. So I think supporting that journey with all the tools we have now, for, for, for example, you know, the, the medicines in cardiogestive heart failure are very good, optimizing ACE inhibitors, ARBs, um, mineralocorticoid antagonists, et cetera, and low-sodium diets are crucial. In diabetes, you know, we're really living in an amazing time for diabetes, making sure that all these patients have the right medicines. Who owns the SGLT2s? Nobody really knows. Yeah. Some primary care do, some cardiologists do, some endocrine do, some nephrology yeah. do. So you need someone centralized who's promoting that. Who's going to yeah. prescribe the GLP-1s? Who's going to maximize the dosages of insulin? Who's going to deploy continuous glucose monitoring in these patients to prevent unnecessary hospitalizations, admissions, and create actionable data in real time? You know, as patients progress on their journey to advanced CKD, advanced heart failure, we know as clinicians, many are going to die or pass away before they actually really need dialysis or some other ag aggressive intervention, but we don't, we want to be able to monitor them still. So as opposed to monthly lab draws where you get one snapshot in time, continuous monitoring of sodium and potassium can be very useful to create actionable events where you can prescribe in real time to help a patient avoid an ER visit or more importantly in my world, avoid dialysis. I mean, a crash into dialysis and, and plan a planned dialysis start. So now with the advent of the newer potassium lowering agents, gentler on the abdomen, easy to tolerate. We have a world of ability now to prevent admissions if we have data. So the key yeah. is harnessing that data and knowing when to share it. If you're yeah. sharing too much data, it can be harmful because you get paralyzed by it. Sharing too little data can also be do the same exact thing. So for us trying to identify that patient that needs those monitoring devices helps us deploy effectively. We don't believe everybody needs them, but we yeah. do believe a subset of our population that we manage would certainly benefit from maybe one, two, or all of the devices that are out there. 
because uh, technology is so good, you know, and, and yeah. creating pathways for those patients to be engaged with their clinicians in real time, as opposed to having to call it in, we react to the number we get, right? So it takes yeah. it off the patient because the patient doesn't have the wherewithal often to get in touch with us. And we, as doctors, frankly, do a terrible job of being available to the patients after hours or real time because of call schedules, et cetera, et cetera. So creating those systems of monitoring are very, very important to, right. to take care Especially, of patients at home. So, so Shami, what I'm hearing is you have your claims data that allows you to understand who's at risk of progressing to chronic kidney disease. You have a, uh, a really comprehensive care team that's, that comprises specialists who come together to really support the patient. And you have all these very, very life-saving, disease-modifying therapies at your, at your disposal, more coming to market. And you have a series of really good tools. I would say continuous glucose monitor is probably one of the best examples that we use in remote physiological monitoring that has really highlighted the need for more continuous data that then activates all the other right. pieces that you have. What are, so you mentioned potassium, sodium being two things. And then even as people transition into, into progressing into dialysis uh, with CKD, what are some of the, the gaps that you really see uh, in, in, in helping all of this infrastructure that you've already built and have in your disposal, Shami? Yeah, you know, as patients progress to dialysis care, you know, it, it's challenging and easier in some ways. And easier because they're being seen every other day, right? So a clinician right. is some, if they're on in-center dialysis, okay? So, mm -hmm. you know, you have the ability to monitor them, but that's not the best way to uh, provide care, in my opinion. You know, we focus yeah. heavily on home-based dialysis, which relies on a couple of things. One, the patient engagement, family engagement being motivated, and the social contract is for us to provide support to that member and, and do what they need to be successful. So we have a two-way street there, but that patient needs to you know, eat correctly and, and check their own labs off. And home hemodialysis patients draw their own labs monthly and send them in or draw their own transplant labs. So I think it's getting better and better as we get more penetration, but I think we have to have systems of support that are default positions, not you know, make the patient reach out to us all the time. You know, I, I find that right. that's the Achilles heel of a lot of these programs is the patient tries to do everything right, but they can't get in touch with us or they don't know what to do if this happens. We don't do a great job of explaining everything we need to explain to them. So I think infrastructure creatment is an opportunity for us in, as a medical, as a, as a country that we can get better at, that is getting better and harnessing the technology that, that uh, we're deploying and knowing when it's actionable and when it's just noise is going to be the big next piece you know, because mm -hmm. you don't want to get paralyzed. You know, as a clinician now, my phone is pinging 25, 30, 50 times a day from Epic. And yeah. not and a lot of the information is not useful. You know, it's yeah. just a notification. So how do yeah. we make that system smarter to know that that's not what the clinician wants to hear? And someone yeah. like you in your space, I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts on that. But that to me is what I need as a clinician to be better going forward, you know. We, we do. And one of the things that we've actively said uh, we want to emphasize is early engagement with groups that want to make sure that the, the data that comes out and is being provided to the group is immediately actionable and not over overloading them and to create fatigue or the other way around is not enough to, to give enough actionability. So really finding that sweet spot. Yeah. And I believe, like you said, it, it is really personalized to each patient because each patient's journey is different, right? So right. Who better to look at look at that with the than a than a group such as yourselves who are have this holistic approach and patient to patient interactions, uh, looking at that, which is very exciting for us. Now, um, as we kind of um, one last piece before we we look at kind of the future, Shami, which is the progression to dialysis. A lot of people 
don't don't quite understand that or they don't think about it until it kind of stares you in the face. Right. Right. It, you mentioned earlier that a lot of the patients that you're looking at, they don't know they have chronic kidney disease until you tell them. What's what's one of the biggest challenges associated with that? Because we from from where we stand, we see people with hypertension living a pretty decent life for a long time. Diabetes has become that technology enabled, thankfully. Uh, but when it comes to this, when it comes to transitioning into chronic kidney disease with heart failure and then starting dialysis, we find this gap where people are more aware of it only at the last minute, which is yeah. which is terrifying. And when we speak to when we speak to uh, patients who undergo this, they are just wondering life support. Is that my option suddenly? Yeah. Uh, and, and how do you how do you think about uncovering this chasm of earlier detection of chronic kidney disease and earlier management and prolonging kidney life? Yeah, great, great question. You know, I think the asymptomatic nature of the illness is always is a problem, right? You know, none of us want to think about something until we have a symptom, but yet we know on the inside we're all aging and breaking down on the inside. But until we have a symptom like you know, a swollen joint or an injury, we don't really pay attention to it, but we are aging, right, as we speak. Yeah. So I, I use this very example, everyday example for my patients. I tell them that if I look at my cell phone right now and it's on, I really can't tell how much charge is on it, right? It could be 1% charge or 99% charge. But I know when it's 0% charge, because it's off. So I, I kind of use that same example for our kidneys is that it's declining, but it does pretty good work until the end. So if you're not A, aware, you're going to have a problem because you haven't charged it up, so to speak, okay? And two, it requires supporting that patient with the right tools to be successful and knowing who's gonna progress and who's not. That's where we have to get smarter and smarter. That patient with a GFR of 42 with, with four grams of protein is likely gonna progress more than the 80-year-old with a GFR of 14 who's at home and comfortable and stable. So, you know, I use the term inappropriately normal. You know, our systems like Epic and others just use a like a population-based laboratory plan, right? Not as specific for that member. So you yeah. kind of touched on it a second ago, you know, trying to understand what the patient, where they are in their journey and conveying that to them in a meaningful way with things that they can do to be successful. In the patient who goes to dialysis, we have to be honest with them and say, look, you are X years old, less than 70. So you are a transplant candidate. So it looks like you're heading to dialysis. We need to work all we can work so that you can get a transplant one day. And it's going to require this, this, and this, and we'll focus on home-based dialysis, et cetera. And the patient who's elderly, we can't uh, be afraid of talking to them about dialysis could be harmful to you. So you're, you're 75, 78 years old and not a transplant candidate because of your heart failure or, or COPD. So we're going to take a conservative approach to this, not, not do care, but do a different type of care that's going to mm -hmm. keep you alive for a long time, but not subject you to a treatment that may actually shorten your life because of the uh, morbidity associated with fistula catheter, et cetera, infection. So I think we have to be honest with the patients and really focus on what's best for them and not use a one size fits all for all of these members. So at a high level at Monogram, we believe that the evidence-based criteria should be applied to each and every patient. The more yeah. chronic conditions you have, the more likely you are to benefit from medical management than aggressive surgical or, or, or other interventions for the most part. Now that's not right. across the board for the most part. The more chronic conditions you have, we need to designate a specialist to drive your care and use yeah. appropriate specialty support for the other illnesses and not have you see every doctor all the time yeah. for everything. And then lastly, I think it's just about the patient. It's about being honest with the patient. All of us would appreciate if our doctors were honest with us as hard as it may be to hear things. And I firmly, and I'll repeat that, I firmly believe that unburdening somebody's mind by being honest with them and telling them where they are 
helps them live a longer, happier, healthier life, even if it's yeah. maybe a happier, healthy life, whether it's shorter or longer. So, you yeah. know, not having to worry about dialysis because it's not good for you may actually help you live longer because you're not worried about it anymore. Yeah. You're not Better worrying about of life. Yeah. So I, I think that's under uh, under appreciated and under recognized in the patient care environment. And, and lastly, one more lastly is the SDOH part. Right. You know, if you don't take that into consideration and come to people where they are and understand culturally what their limitations are or culture, what they believe in or understanding, uh, you know, that whatever barriers they have addressing those barriers, because you're not going to be successful if you don't address barriers. And yeah. our current healthcare model doesn't address barriers well. You know, we yeah. try to incorporate that into our intake, our model, and each one of our patients has a social worker or, or some other resource assigned to them that they need that that, that person is held accountable to from the from our side of, of the delivery system. So I think it's yeah. an exciting, exciting time to be taking care of patients right now because of the change in mentality of, yeah. of, of our of our country in general. And, and, and I do firmly believe the patients have to also participate in their care. You know, we can't yeah. be asked as clinicians to drive outcomes if the patient is not participating or doesn't have the tools to participate. You know, uh, yeah. I, I think inherently patients who do want to do better. Yeah, exactly. Well, Shami, thank you very much for sharing that. My last question was going to be about <clears throat> what really gets you excited, but there's so many things that you've touched on that, that gives us cause for op optimism to think that, you know, we're headed in the right direction. And I commend you for all the hard work that you and your, your team are doing at Monogram. It's a, it's a true inspiration for us to watch um, from the sidelines in a sense. Uh, and as we also think about developing better tools and uncovering, you know, bigger gaps, we look forward to having more and more conversations with thought leaders such as you and uh, and your team. Yeah, uh, thank you, Sahan, for inviting me today. And again, I wish the best of luck to you. I've learned a lot about you and your business and, and how innovative the approaches you're taking to this space. And I look forward to, you know, seeing where uh, your company goes and what you guys turn into and, and the tools you create to help us do all the things we just described. So I think we're living really on the on the, in the early innings of this, you know, and it's going to be yeah. really exciting to see where we are one, five, 10 years from now when it comes yeah. to uh, how, how patients are taken care of. So 